Welcome to the Penny Bloom Podcast. Ain't another place that has got more bombast. Rump past your mom, dad's listening to Tomcast. Talking everything that make you sad. We don't want that. We're here to make you smile. Put your mind at ease. Peace, love, and bloom, and always praise Keanu Reeves. This what we about. Get some weed and now. We'll talk until we can't no more, and then we peace and out. Alright, let's go. Penny Bloom Podcast. It's the Penny Bloom Podcast. Penny Bloom Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome in to the ultimate Penny Bloom Film Awards. Tis I, Colton Robertson, and I'm joined by Joseph George. What's up, homie? Ah, what up, what up? It's such a pleasure and honor to be here today. Oh, we've done many an award show. Many an award show over the course of our 52-year journey through film. Uh... It's been a great joy. We had a, an award show for the 70s, an award show for the 80s, an award show for the 90s, an award show for the 2000s, an award show for the 2010s. We skipped out on the 20s because we just rolled the winners into this. The ultimate Penny Bloom Film Awards. We are taking the winners of every category in every decade and setting them up against each other. Let's go through those categories for you real quick. We have set design, costume design, best soundtrack, best supporting actress, best supporting actor, best lead actress, best lead actor, best director, best writer, and ultimately movie of the last five decades. Mm. We're going to pick the best movie of all time, according to us, uh, according to our project. Yeah, any movie before MASH doesn't exist. Uh, nah, anything before the 70s, nah, not according to this project. Uh, it's not real. Uh, it's mythic. It's fake. It's it's not real. It's not there. Going full uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 Maybe a quick award to Matthew McConaughey. Uh, just, the... just generally a good award to Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. He feels like he feels fitting. Uh but let's kick this shit off. You fucking mm-hmm. ready? Oh, man. I, I've been ready for a while for this one. It's bittersweet, though. Yeah, uh, it's but... time to, like, this is, like, officially concluding the 52-year journey through film. I uh, had a tough time after the Everything Everywhere All at One Spot. I was kind of like, man, I really liked this one. I don't know how much I really want to dip away from this format. Like, because we're watching mm-hmm. some damn good movies. And I, I set up the list for the comic book movie project. I was like, there's going to be stretches there. We're watching some shit movies. You know, and honestly, it sounds bad initially. But it's gonna be it fun. will be nice just to be like, you know what? I know this movie's shitty going into it. I already know. Like, I just want to watch Let's it as if I have no trashed. bias whatsoever. Or, yeah, and we can we can trash a movie. We haven't been able to really trash a movie. And, like, we've only been able to say great things. It'll be, like, and there are some gold movies in there. There are some ones that are actually, like... Oh, yeah, it's that's what's what's so exciting about that project to come. You know, we got... There are some gold standard movies. There are some absolute shitters, and I cannot wait (laughs) to get to them. Uh, Just because, I mean, like like we said, this, this whole project was set around us going, what might be the best movie from any given decade? Obviously, there were some reprieves in there. We had 1987, we went with Spaceballs. 
Um, I know some are like, 2002, you had Scooby-Doo, and to you, I'd say, fuck you, that's the greatest movie of all time. Yeah, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. You're that's... a goddamn idiot. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we, we've had some fun ones in there. We've slipped them in there. I mean, 2011, we did Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I wouldn't necessarily say that's like the, like, oh, you go to 2011, you're like, that's the greatest movie of the <laughs> year, you know? Like, I... I don't know. We just we just picked whatever the fuck we wanted to pick, you know? Uh, so let's get into it. All the winners of every decade faced off against each other in the Ultimate Penny Bloom Film Awards. And if you ever spread it word of mouth, you have to say it like that. Yes, uh, it's, that's exactly how you... You have to strike the deep tone, like kind of like a Star Wars, or not a Star Wars, a well, kind of Star Wars Clone Wars narrator voice, but like uh, I was thinking more SpongeBob narrator yeah. voice, Squilliam. Yes, yeah, so Squilliam. Squilliam mixed with SpongeBob narrator. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The tight, tight beat. And but I guess a quick disclaimer before we give any award: Scooby Doo would obviously win every category, so it is held aside on a different standard from these awards yeah that that was the concern that was the natural concern with all these categories was i mean how does scooby-doo not sweep uh so we had to we had to go ahead and exclude it um so i want to make it clear that's not because it wouldn't have earned any nominations that's just because we felt it was unfair to include it in the 2000s awards. Like, if you go back to the 2000s awards, we barely include it because it's just like, well, duh, that's the greatest movie. Uh, but let's begin. Let's begin the ultimate Penny Bloom Film Awards. Mm. We'll kick it off with the the less personal, the less the less actor, actress, writer, director base. Let's go set design. Mm. For the 70s, the winner was Star Wars, A New Hope. We did a live commentary of that film, and it was a great joy. It was a happy, happy Thanksgiving. That might confuse everyone listening, as it was released in, like, February. We also have, for the 80s, The Shining. For the 90s, The Truman Show. For the aughts, Gladiator. For the 10s, La La Land. And for the 20s, Tick, Tick, Boom. Now, obviously, these all have some pretty incredible set design. That is the point of this <laughs> this award show. Uh, they were the winners of their decade. Uh, kind of spoiling every other award show if you have any interest in it, because Whoops. we're going to go ahead and give you the winners. <laughs> um, but yeah, Star Wars, The Shining, The Truman Show, Gladiator, La La Land, and Tick Tick Boom. How you feeling? The ones that jump out at me right away... Star Wars is, I mean... A very natural one. To I mean, come on. Um, those, those <laughs> like, those paintings that were, like, the backgrounds go for millions upon millions. Like, it's... Well, and even the sets awesome. that they did and build then, yeah. on, like, on a nothing budget at the time to just have that sort of creativity. And I say nothing budget. George Lucas ended up saying, <laughs> fuck your budget. I'm going to go ahead and do whatever I want uh, straight out of my pocket. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, I mean, like, it's got some incredible sets, you know. This is going to be a nice little test of our bias uh, across mm, this award I show know. with all the Star Wars awards. You know, the the Shining is, it's pretty much just the hotel. And not not to say it was bad, it won the decade. Um, it's, it was you the know, way it's the set was a character. It's, yes, yeah, it was more, uh, that's not the that it was any anything fantastic or 
unbelievable. It was just, uh... I don't think Kubrick and the team there built the hotel. No. No, probably not. Um, the Truman Show was kind of meta, uh, with the set, you know, it being a, a huge set that he's living in, basically. Um, and, but at the same time, you know, they did have to actually make some of those plays. You know, like the fake wall behind the elevator is like just a cool little peek into the, you know, a meta look into the camera crew of the people who right, are filming right. the movie, but it's also filming Truman. Cool. Um, and I don't know, making it just a globe. Like a dome, just a massive dome in the middle of. Was it in the USA? I guess I don't. Yes, it remember. was in. Uh, it was in Burbank, California. Mm. Oh, because his name is Truman Burbank. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, that's set was super cool there. I don't know if it beats Star Wars out. I, I'm kind of going down the list to see if it does beat Star Wars out, and I don't think one has beat it out yet. And I'm not gonna lie to you, my friend. I don't know that any of them will mm. the next one being gladiator and all a lot of cg a lot of visual effects uh sets there but you know like the the gladiator pits and stuff mm. uh smaller scale not the coliseum obviously they did not back out the coliseum for that wait what yeah i i hate to break it to you but uh, uh they did not actually fill up the coliseum for that <laughs> um gladiator is fake news oh that movie sucks now i can't believe that it is far and away our least popular episode of the year. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, that's the, just statistically, like, far <laughs> less people give a shit about Gladiator than any other movie. There you go. Well, at least you got a nom here. Um, a couple of Oh, and it, actually, it has but... a few over the course yeah. here. Like, it's, uh, and it's worthy. I thought it was a damn good movie. Mm. It just wasn't, uh, the listener, the listenership wasn't appealed. Mm. They were like, yeah, fuck it. I don't give a shit about Gladiator. I can skip this week. I think it also released the same weekend as, like, a new big TV show or something, mm. if I remember correctly. So I remember, like, doing the advertising for it and being like, I know none of you are going to give a shit about this, but go ahead and check out the Gladiator podcast we just did. Um, that was the danger of doing this every Friday. But, uh, mm. yeah, Gladiator, pretty solid. La La Land was the only mm. one that I thought really gave Star Wars a run for its money. This one was very cool. The observatory, I remember that. The actual legitimate sets that they were going through whenever they were having, like, the kind of... I don't know, it was all in their minds, and there was, like, literal sets being, like, pushed, and, like, the, it would change from set to set. That scene like, was awesome. Like, the cars driving by yeah. and shit, and, like, the, like I mean, cardboard mm. cars and the giant road and shit, mm. like... The, the entirely white setting with, like, lamp posts and stuff. Like, it's a very gorgeous, gorgeous set piece there. Um, but even, like, not just the observatory itself, but when it falls away. And yeah. they're in a giant, starry room that's not, ob obviously, mm. not actually there. <laughs> uh, not actually the observatory. Uh, but, yeah, La La Land, it gives it a damn good run for its money. I'll say that for sure. Um, Tick, Tick, Boom, also solid, but... Even comparing it to La La Land feels like, nah, I think La La Land takes the edge there. So, like, sounds to me like our top two are probably Star Wars and La La Land. I'd agree. All right, so we got the 10s versus the 70s. Hmm. Goddamn. Um, yeah. Okay, let's think of Star Wars bias out of my head. The sets of that, The sets of no. the movie... Matt paintings, 
the sh- I guess would you count the ships and stuff? I mean, yeah, I mean, in, the, like in the Falcon. Yeah, the like Falcon? That, that's the place they built. Yeah. Fuck. I don't no, think like it's, the Death yeah. Star. The fucking yeah, like, pill lighting and stuff. It's this. It's Star Wars. Like it, there is, is no bias yeah, necessary no. there for you to recognize that Star Wars has the greatest set design, like or at least the most impactful and distinctive set design of any film franchise ever. Mm. You know, yeah, like, like you see an aesthetic from Star Wars, and you like you know you that's Star know, Wars. Even if you're not a Star Wars fan, like you, I don't know, kind of leading into the next category too, like. You see a silhouette of someone, and you know instantly who it is. Or, like, the Death Star silhouette is known. You know, it's just a circle with a little, just a little itty, or a sphere with a little dent in it, basically. But everyone knows, oh, yeah, that's the big the big Death Star from Star Wars. Like That's a problem. That's a problem right there. But, yeah, so set design, ultimate of, the ultimate winner across all decades, Star Wars for set design. And I, feel, I felt that was probably going to be the case. And I promise... I promise that's not bias-based. In fact, I think over the next couple, you might find that our bias becomes even harder to overcome. Uh, or even easier to overcome. Uh, harder to lean into, easier to overcome. Uh, costume design up next. We got Star Wars for the 70s. The Breakfast Club for the 80s. The Matrix for the 90s. Gladiator for the 2000s. Django Unchained for the 2010s. And everything, everywhere, all at once for the 2020s. Yeah, so, uh, I, in fact, what's interesting about this one, since we're kicking it off with Star Wars, it is it is not where my gut even goes. Wow. My um, gut kind of went Matrix first. Um, you're, well, but that's kind of, I don't know. It, I was, my gut was like, if not Star Wars, then what? Here. And then it would be the Matrix next to me. Um, I just the I look of Neo and everything. But like, as far as the craft of it, ooh. As far as like the actual like knowing they created these pieces of clothing for this movie, Gladiator is absolutely nuts with the costume design. Commodus was dripping drip. That's all I was thinking. Like that's the thing is that for me it was like. <laughs> Star Wars Vader versus Gladiator Commodus as far as uh as far as what the war like the true what got them the nom you know mm-hmm. like that's uh okay cuz I, I mean, think Star Wars has a pretty great selection otherwise but I think that would be a lot of my bias coming into play like I don't think you can objectively look at Luke's like sandboy outfit and go that's as cool as anything from Gladiator you know what I'm saying like uh R2, C3PO, Chewbacca. Chewbacca. Now now there's where Chewbacca and 3PO is really where you start you start going, oh mm. wait a minute. Wait a minute, because they built those suits, you know? Like these aren't CGI augmented characters. Troopers, They're there. All the trooper suits. Oof, uh, the yeah. Emperor. Um Oof, Yeah. Oof, fuck. But in Gladiator, you also had Max like Maximus's outfits were great too like his early like whenever he was fully kitted you know in the beginning of the mm-hmm. movie when he was leading battles and stuff yeah, that yeah. those were sick and that's the... that's kind of the uh, like the authenticity of the era versus the fantastical nature of what mm. star wars ends up doing uh i guess gladiator's costume design is more universal universally good 
as compared to Star Wars, even, I think. like you That, have that was kind skin. of where I was coming from. Like, you mm-hmm. look at that shit, and you can tell, like, there was money behind the costume department. You know what I'm saying? Like, they were... Uh, mm. But that was the that was the thing though is that like I think Gladiator is solid, I think Star Wars is solid. I think those are two great options. The Matrix was naturally a very very easy one to also gravitate to. It's gonna be tough to be glad. Like now that I'm looking at pictures of the suits and stuff. They went nuts the, for that, man. The, okay, this Commodus suit, the, like, purple and white, or the one at the very end, when he, the one he dies in, was beautiful. Like, every outfit. I mean, that's just the era that they're in. Everyone wore outfits, of, you know, people of royalty. Like, it had, it was known that they were royalty based off what they were wearing. So, I mean, but, God. And every character, dude, like... Came with the fucking drip. Okay. In Gladiator. Like, that that's, what, that's what's ultimately, it, like, what's occurring to me when I think about this, is that Star Wars, I felt like, besides, like, 3PO, Vader, and Chewbacca are the premier examples of fantastic costume design in Star Wars. Stormtroopers also, like, that's, that's like, very unique, very original. Um... But those other ones, those are like a, that's a marvel of cinema. Like people really thought C-3PO was a robot that they had on set. Uh, Chewbacca was like a, that's a dude in a giant furry yeah. costume. But uh, <laughs> it was still like, that dude's like seven foot eight. Like what the fuck? Um, and then, you know, everything everywhere all at once is another one that we have here. Joy. Yeah, Joe Boots a Pocky, man. Mm. That's a, yeah, that's I guess just. More correctly, Joe. Yeah, I shouldn't call her Joy. Um, I mean, it kind of is. It's Alpha Joy, you know. It's Alpha Joy. Yeah. So it's Raccoon Joy, but <laughs> Raccoonie Joy. Um, oh yeah, that's oh that's right. That's how. Whenever she's trying to explain to them what's going on, is that Raccoon? Is that Raccoonie Joy, or is that is that are you Raccoonie? Or uh, no, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Fucking fantastic! Mm. I love that movie, but uh. Yeah, you know, like I think those those four are really like the premier options and everything everywhere all at once has a disadvantage because it really is only one character whose costume design goes nuts. Mm. Um I will say like the amount of costume changes she does and everything the the different designs she wears over the course of the movie, she might be the single mm. best example of costume design in a single character, but across the movie, I don't think I can award it to them. You know what I'm saying? That's fair. And, I mean, to its credit, like, The Matrix, I kind of forgot, like, they started a trend at, for, like, sunglasses. Neo's sunglasses, and, like, in, in, like, all the sunglasses that people wore, like, people, that that was what was cool because of this movie. Like the yeah. early two thousands, people wore the neo shades, or or the morph. I, I, maybe weren't sporting the Morpheus. No, you know, no. Uh, right, right. Whatever, but like, you know, it it's very it's simple but unique at the same time. Like it's, it's trench coats. You know, it's like their ultimate version of themselves is what they're imagining. You know, so it's kind of cool. Uh, it doesn't win here. Um, but like it is just, no. it like, is just I, really cool. 
it like what I think it is coming down to is the uniqueness of Star Wars versus the craft of Gladiator. You know, like I felt like the uh I've already reiterated those points a couple times, you know. So, like, it is ultimately up to us just going ahead and making a fucking decision because I can't. I can't decide. As far as the entire movie goes, and I think that's what the award is more for, not, like, just that, I mean, Darth Vader is one of the best costume designs of all time, but Gladiator, every character is spot on and beautiful and crafted unbelievably. I think it's it's critically correct to give it to Gladiator. Okay. Okay. I think so too. I think so too. I'm with you. I'm glad that's where we ended up because that is that was where my gut took me. Mm. Was just because I remember thinking about it so like that was far and away the premiere best part of that movie for that's me. true if i'm taking anything out of that movie like remembering 10 years like 10 years in the future i'm like what do i like about the movie gladiator I'll be like those costumes were sick yeah i'm not gonna be like the fight scenes were incredible yeah i love the sword play no i don't know uh, <laughs> i love the sword play yeah okay uh, one guy who's in westworld season three is very <laughs> young in it uh i mean there, there you go. I mean, there's there's already a, a loss for Star Wars, you know? There um, it is. There it is. I needed at least one. I can feel much more comfortable about awarding everything mm. Star Wars from here on out. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> yep, set design goes to Star Wars in the 70s. Costume design goes to Gladiator in the aughts. So uh, let's, let's push forth with best soundtrack. We've got John Williams for Star Wars. Uh, in the 70s, John Williams for Raiders of the Lost Ark in the 80s, John Williams for Jurassic Park in the 90s. I believe it was uh, James Horner who did the Avatar soundtrack in the aughts, Hans Zimmer who did the Interstellar score in uh, the 10s, and Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom for the 20s. Mm. Uh, and I'm crediting Jonathan Larson. I know they weren't recorded and everything by <laughs> Jonathan Larson, but he did write all of the songs. It's so basically like, uh, Jonathan Larson featuring everyone else who worked on yeah, the movie exactly, in a way. Exactly. Um, but various. Wow, I mean, we got we have some of the greatest soundtracks of all time in here. Um, these these top you know three Star Wars Raiders Jurassic are probably the most recognizable soundtracks. In movie sure. history, like, you hear one note for some, and you instantly know where you are, and it puts you right in the universe. Um, out of these, which one do I listen to the most? As of right now, it's Interstellar. That's because I started my own movie and TV soundtrack playlist. It's not anywhere near the length of yours yet. I only have four <laughs> soundtracks in there right, right. now. Um, so it's just, I, I'm listening to Interstellar more. Do I think it beats... Star Wars Raiders or Jurassic Park? No. Um. <laughs> I, 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 that's the thing for me is that I, it is between one of those three. Let's be real about John's it. John's going to win here. John's going to win. A John will win here. A the, John. You know, the win. meaning behind Jonathan Larson's soundtrack it, like, is, is insane. It's just it, as far as it, what a soundtrack is supposed to do for a movie – John Williams is winning this category. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so I, here's my thing. We got Star Wars, Raiders, and Jurassic. 
if I'm being like 100% honest of the theme I go to, it's not necessarily what's best, but when I think of a John Williams theme, it's Indy's theme. Now, I think, what's the most iconic out of all of these? I think Star Wars because of the, because of the fanfare title. Mm. Um, Okay, I guess the theme, if you were just to take the theme by itself, I think like Raiders or Jurassic Park actually wins here, but the entire collection of the soundtrack you have vader's theme luke's theme leia's theme uh yoda's let me theme. tell you leia's theme leia's theme is that song bro i mean ooh, and the, the imperial march um, yeah uh i guess it, i guess i'm imperial march isn't technically yeah, till empire so, yeah, yeah but so, uh, uh, they do play it just oh. a different version of it the Cantina Band. Um, yeah. I tried. I tried to avoid it. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's possible here, though. It's Star Wars. It's. It's. Well. Okay. If we're thinking of what. A soundtrack is supposed to do for a movie. Sure, all these songs could be good on their own, but in the moment, it has to make you feel the emotion that they want you to feel. And, like, Raiders, it does a perfect job of making you feel like an adventurer and, like, a you know, you're watching this hero become a hero, even though he's not a hero. It's, like, it's beautiful and it's it's epic. Jurassic Park, like, the whenever you see the dinosaurs for the first time, if that music's not there, like... Even though I said that, I think Star Wars might still execute on the soundtrack. The example I wanted to go with. The example I wanted to go with. Tell me in your head, and we are Star Wars fans, so this might be a little unfair, but in your head, think about Luke looking out at the twin suns. The music swell there. Fuck. (laughs) That's enough. There's not a line spoken in that in that entire sequence right there. And it's one of the most iconic shots in the... It is, like, in comparison to Jurassic Park, the first time they see the dinos. Like, mm-hmm. that, that is kind of what it is in that moment. Uh, That's right after his... Like, he comes home, his parents are dead, and he's looking out? Is that... Or is no, Anna, it, or, I think they're when still is, alive. Uh, they're still alive, but it's just... Uh, what is happening? It's it's the night before he has to go out searching for R2 the next morning. Okay. Um. Mm. Yeah, that's... I don't know, man. I, I'm trying to find a way that Star Wars doesn't win here. And every time I bring up, like, oh, it might not win here, it actually does, like, still do the best out of all of them. I um, mean, the theme at Yavin at the end, whenever they're celebrating their victory. The th- hmm. Poor Chewie not getting a freaking medal. The fucking trench run, like... The trench run. You... It, that I There was a YouTube video... That showed the trench run with music and without. 
it's so like it's actually kind of boring without the music. Like even I like it's one of the most iconic scenes in all of Star Wars. But like without the music, it's it's like kind of tough to watch. Like, like I think John Williams is potentially the most critically important piece of Star Wars history, mm. aside from George Lucas, of course. But like uh, him being there through all those movies. It just brings them to a different level, and it, it, I don't think it could have started better than with Star Wars and New Hope. So two out of the three awards out of the way, that's really that's really what I was I was like, okay, if we can get two out of three even, I'll be good. So uh, Star, Star Wars won set design and best soundtrack, while costume design went to Gladiator. And it's time we get to the more personal stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's hit the supporting actress category. You fucking ready? Whew. We got some goodies in here. We do indeed. So let's start. We did not have a supporting actress in the 70s uh, because it was a sausage fest in the 70s. Indeed. Um, lots of great leading ladies, though, in the 70s. It was, hard to, it was hard to pick a winner then. But best supporting actress for the 80s. Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood in Raiders of the Lost Ark. In the 90s, Gwyneth Paltrow in Seven. In the 2000s, Ruby D as Mama Lucas, an American gangster. In the 2010s, Sodan Park as Kijun in Parasite. And in the 2020s, Stephanie Hsu as Joy Wong in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And you'll be shocked to hear from me that this isn't hard. Hmm. Not for me. For me, this is an almost easy win for Stephanie Shu as Joy Wong. Wow. Okay, I was between these two. the The first three, I was like, I was only between Parasite and Everywhere All, or Everything Everywhere All at Once. And then I'm thinking, I'm like, well, Sodan Park. She had like a few good scenes, but Joy was just like she makes you feel that shit, man. Like, because here's the thing: is that of these roles as well, she's the closest to a leading leading lady in the room you know like michelle yo is the main character and everything everywhere all at once but she almost splits time with joy you know like mm-hmm. it, it was kind of a could almost be either or they could have had two leading lady noms frankly but uh like sodan park as kijung in parasite is fucking stellar i love ruby d as mama lucas but she only has like one or two scenes that she's there for gwyneth paltrow only has one scene that she's there for marion ravenwood was kind of a an automatic win for the eighties just because mm. it was like, who else are we going to give it to? Um, yeah, this one, it really did. It really did come down to Sodan park and Stephanie shoe. And Stephanie shoe just did better. Just... I mean, I think to the, uh, I think to the, cause when you really put everything on a bagel, that's what's crazy about that monologue. Like, I can't get over this movie. It's so because serious. It's absurd. But it's absurd. But like, I'm feeling every ounce of what she's feeling in that moment. Whenever she's like, every report card, every Craigslist ad, every every whatever, and like, then it cuts back to her, and she's got a tear rolling down her face, and she's like, uh, hooked uh. on a bagel, <laughs> and then it just. I don't. I I can't get over it, man. Stephanie Hsu is potentially one of my favorite performances of all time. Is it that as I as Joy and Jobu Tabaki, or that you're not allowing me? Like that her yeah. introduction uh, was insane. Like 
her, she can be evil. Oh no, you don't want me to, you don't want No! Dude, like, she's fucking nuts with it. It's, it's legitimately, like I said, one of my favorite performances of all time. That's why when we got here, it wasn't hard. Mm. Like, it's, it is Stephanie Shue's joy. Like, and then that, la- like, to get away from the more outlandish stuff, the last, the last interaction with mm. Michelle Yeoh, whenever everything's going nuts around her and she just goes, will you just stop? Mm. Mm-hmm. And then they have the real deal conversation about like whenever she's like, good for you, mom, you getting your shit figured out. Good mm-hmm. for you. Like, oh, I'm crying my ass off. Are you just going to ignore man. everything else? Like her, like yeah. it. Oh, God. Yeah, no. That, this one's pretty easy. If if she was almost a nom for a leading role, which is probably more apt for that. It's just Michelle Yeoh's Michelle Yeoh. So yeah. like it's like it wouldn't we weren't gonna, we weren't going to give her the supporting nod, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, but man, I mean yeah, a, a, a absolutely massive part of the movie. If if like you take her out, like she, she's the main antagonist um, in air quotes, I'd say. Um, yeah, yeah. But man, yeah, that this one's pretty pretty simple here. I'd say. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction: an antagonist, not a villain. Mm. You know, like uh, yeah, she's not evil. Ah, yeah. She's just. She's lonely. looking for someone, someone to help. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, but so now we've got two winners in the seventies, one in the aughts, and one in the twenties. We're getting diverse already. Around. Okay. Eighties and nineties feeling a little neglected at the moment, but hey, I'm sure we'll get there. Hey, we spent a whole week on one year of the nineties, so like they got their their fix. They got their time. <laughs> they got their time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, best supporting actress Stephanie Shu was Joy Wong. So let's head on. To best supporting actor, uh, we've got for the seventies Richard Dreyfus as Hooper in Jaws. In the nineties, Robert Sean Leonard as Neil in Dead Poets Society. Or that was the eighties. In the nineties, Morgan Freeman as Red in The Shawshank Redemption, and as Somerset in Seven, depending on what you're what you're looking for. Do we have I go to choose one here? If we are choosing one, it's Red. Um, yeah, I yeah, like... but I mean, like, we'll be, like, it doesn't matter. He's gonna win. Uh, okay, in the <laughs> odds, Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus. In the tens, Jonah Hill as Donnie Azoff. And in the twenties, Kikwan as Wayman Wang in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Another nom there for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. But um, should we just give some honorable mentions here? And then, yeah, and then... yeah, because it's Morgan Freeman again, kind of a similar situation as Stephanie Hsu as Joy. Uh, he easily could have gotten the best leading actor nom for any of those movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a matter of who they centered as the main character in those movies. Um, so I, I do want to give, yeah, no, best actress is the, <laughs> the most nightmare of a category there is. I, yeah, I won't. I, I like. Ahead a I, little bit and I don't know. Yeah, think about hard. it. That's... I'll, I'll start with the. I think my first honorable mention out of the list, the one that's the closest, I feel, is. Uh, Wayman, like Wayman's character, it's on it, like on the emotional level um, that he connects with you, like the where he's confused and he feels like it's all his fault. That scene alone was amazing, and then his, I guess he's not doing all the stunts and stuff like that, but like just he had to do so much. He had to be the super happy and everything's okay husband, and like I mean the way he changes his uh, his cadence, the way he speaks Ooh, changes when he is true. alpha Wayman, yeah. and when he's when he's normal Wayman. Like he 
he's he's got a higher pitched voice when he's not alpha wayman and, and like that part where he's like you really like he like acts like he's about to get sad and then he switches right into uh hmm. alpha wayman you know like he think... had to do a lot of shit for this movie you know it kind of just hit me like obviously i know it's the same actor doing it all but like i really think of them as different characters no like, yeah that's what's incredible about that movie dude like when you think about every performance in that movie there's not one, there's not a single one that's lacking like mm-hmm. all of them fucking nail it uh james gong is or james hong is gong gong jamie lee curtis as deirdre she's like one of the funniest performances across <laughs> our entire fucking 52 year journey through film you know and Kwan, he like I, I want to save this for a little bit later for one of the categories we got in the latter half of the show, but maybe favorite monologue. Mm. Uh, with the, I don't know what's happening, but somehow I feel like it has to be my fault. You know, like uh, that shit's heartbreaking, uh, and he's the way his voice breaks, and whenever him and Michelle Yeoh are like, I'm. I'm talking through this, and it's nuts that it's still easily Morgan Freeman because, like, just thinking about it makes me go, like, God damn, mm. that's a fucking performance Kiquan put on. Like, it's it's nuts. Do you want to get? I think the next honorable mention goes to to Robert Sean Leonard as Neil in Dead Poets. That was, you know, maybe the I don't know if I like Robin Williams or, or him more in the movie, um, but he's definitely the the focal point of the movie it is you know about him and his story and i mean it was just it, that that movie changed our enjoyment rating completely like we did we, we thought did. about we it, yeah. it's a movie that changed the way we thought about things and and you know i, I feel it wasn't necessarily his performance that did that you know all of it but it was it was definitely a, like a factor that was like da- like damn that was that was damn good like i really he really seem like i don't know that was just whether it he was not a hell of a performance and like i i think to that scene where he he runs back to the room and ethan hawk's sitting there and he's like i know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna be an actor and he like runs around the uh, room throwing the papers and, and stuff and like, or, yeah. yes dude it's so fucking nice and like sitting on top of the roof like uh and when they throw the they throw the shit off the building like that's that's that shit right Whenever there. Whenever he's in know? a cave like, and he like they're performing, you know, so, like to yeah. everyone. Oh, um, oh yeah. Like that's the thing about these awards is that none of these are bad. Like they have won their decade. Oh no, yeah, like yeah. Um, that, that's the thing when when the easy easy L is Richard Dreyfus as Hooper and Jaws. You know, you did fucking good. Yeah. Everywhere else, you know, like because he's. Dang. He was the fun, one of the funniest performers across our, our 52-year journey through film in Hooper. But, uh, I mean, I, I think we got to give our love to Joaquin Phoenix and Jonah Hill mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Because Joaquin Phoenix's Commodus was a top-tier, like, not antagonist, villain. Villain, villain. You know, to, to compare it to Stephanie Shue's antagonist. That yeah, villain. that one's easy there. Um. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he was a fucking villain. And Jonah Hill, uh, I said Hooper was one of the funniest. Donnie Azoff might just be the funniest mm. Uh, on the actor side of our 52 as, and as far film. as Jonah Hill goes like there's no oh, other the Jonah Hill performance yeah, that's, yeah. that's top one right there but overall god damn it's that Shawshank movie, movie man. man that Shawshank movie is just <sighs> something so different red. Mm. red was here heading down to Zewatanejo mm. 
This is a feeling that only a free man can feel. A Morgan Freeman. Of of not knowing what comes the next day. It is a feeling only a free man can feel. Monologue there. There's another monologue. Yeah, no, nah, Morgan Freeman. Like, but, we're going to have a good, know. that's yeah. a good category coming mm-hmm. up later. Um, but yeah, Morgan Freeman in the Shawshank Redemption. It just, uh, it doesn't get much better than that, man. Like, it, it, it our supporting nods were easy. Those were easy winners in Stephanie Shu and Morgan Freeman. We finally got a 90s winner here for Morgan Freeman. But now we're into what are truly the hardest categories of the list. We've got Best Actress and Best Actor coming up. So let's start with Actress. What do you say? Ladies first, after all. Fuck. Um, no, this is a nightmare. 70s, we've got Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia Organa. In the 80s, we've got Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley in Aliens. In the 90s, Lorraine Bracco as Karen Hill in Goodfellas. In the in the aughts, we got Uma Thurman as Beatrix Kiddo in Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. And if we're going to get specific with it, I'd go Volume 2. Mm. Uh, in the 10s, we got Emma Stone as Mia in La La Land. And in the 20s, we got Michelle Yeoh as Evelyn Wong in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. So let me read that list to you again of the six of the greatest actresses of all time. Carrie Fisher, Sigourney Weaver, Lorraine Bracco, Uma Thurman, Emma Stone, and Michelle Yeoh. I've... I think I've narrowed it down to three, but then the more I think of it, I'm like, ah, like, hey. No, that's what's crazy is I see the three you've selected, and, like, frankly, you could also just be meaning the ones who aren't highlighted. (laughs) Ah. Okay. One of the most memorable, like, memorable, I feel, like, it made me feel the most, was Sigourney Weaver and Michelle Yeoh. I feel, are, like, the two that were, like, whoa, if you were not in this movie, the movie would not be a movie. But then you could say... I think I think the only one you couldn't... I think there are two you could say that that's not the case for. You know, because I think Emma Stone, if Emma Stone's not in La La Land, it's fucked. Um, like, it's absolutely screwed. Lorraine Bracco in Goodfellas and Carrie Fisher in Star Wars... Don't get me wrong, Leia Organa is my single favorite fictional character of all time. Uh, There's just a whole lot of movie without her there. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's still so much that goes on. And don't get me wrong, she does, like, the character itself does play a pivotal point. She is the pivoting point on which the whole plot starts to turn with, uh, Mm. with Luke going on his adventure via the call to action by Leia. And the whole the whole breaking her out of the Death Star sequence. And frankly, it is the most iconic performance here. Mm. Oh yeah. Like you you say Le- Princess Leia, it's it, there's no I didn't one have else. to specify the movie. You yeah. know, like I, I did like I, I read Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia Organa and didn't elaborate. Mm. No you, you know who Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia Organa is. Mm. <laughs> um I guess the, the the difference between these two and the others is that the others are, like, the lead, lead actresses. And what I mean by that is, like, the movie is, like, very about much them. about them. 
and Lorraine Bracco and, and Carrie Fisher, even though they are the lead actresses actresses for the movie, the movie isn't necessarily focused on them and only them. Um, mm-hmm. So it is, you know, like... I don't like, know between these these four, like, yeah, because I mean specifically, like, it's interesting that we have a few that you can just like compare directly to each other. Like, I'd say, uh, Carrie Fisher and Lorraine Bracco are an important comparison because they are sort of supporting characters, but they are the lead actresses. Mm. Uh, Sigourney Weaver and Uma Thurman are these action centered badass heroes who are just so fucking cool. Like the, like the fact that we have carry, like we have Leo Organa, Ellen Ripley and Beatrix kiddo going against each other. It's just not, it's just not fair. You know, like how am I supposed to decide? Like Emma Stone had to act, sing and dance, you know, like it's, it's all these other people are pretty much only up here for their acting performance. Let's, let's do this. We did, we did this for each, each decade. The moment like the Oscar moment. They they say and this person nominated for this movie and then they play the clip. Uma what Thurman clip is getting played. Ooh. I guess I was trying to think of like I don't know maybe that isn't the easy cuz there's a lot to choose from from Uma Thurman. Two movies to choose from for her. Um cuz I was going to say the end scene between her and Bill. But honestly it's more Bill that talks there and she she just does the five finger you know death yeah. combo to him. Um, the one for me for Uma is the first time she sees Bibi, her daughter. Ooh, alive. Okay, duh. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's the Thank one where you. she like there's just, like another one where not a lot of words are spoken, but it's one where the way she acts it is just like you feel every second of that. You know what I'm saying? And Volume Two is the more she had a lot more room to go. Mm. Uh, in volume two, you know, like volume one was much more action centered, and volume two which was much more character driven. Mm-hmm. And Uma Thurman carries both movies, but volume two, she's she's nuts in. Um, Sigourney Weaver. Oh man, she's just so cool throughout the whole movie. What's her moment though? It has to be. With the little girl, I forgot her mm-hmm. name. It's Newt. Um, Newt. Yeah, it has to be something with her. Like, I think for me, it might just be when she finds Newt, and they're in that little crawl space, you know. Yeah, and like, and like things change from that point. Yeah. Again, a mother figure meeting the daughter figure, mm-hmm. and and everything kind of turning on its axis from that point. Okay, uh, Emma Stone. The audition. Yeah. That's, That's just... There, uh, yeah, there, there's no other moment really there that can beat that one. Um, and she's got a pretty nuanced performance and stuff, you know? Like, I think she's pretty funny in that movie. Uh, like, whenever Ryan Gosling's playing at the party, and she's, she's like, play Iran! And then she does, like, the mocking dance mm. to him in the crowd while he <laughs> performs it. Like, she's like, yeah, fuck you, dude. Like, that shit's funny. But, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, that whole scene, the the whole realization realization when she's walking through Seb's at the end, like the way she plays you through that's really impeccable. Um, mm. She does damn like that's what sucks is like she was my first 
out when I first looked at this. And her performance is nuts. Like it's a real like it for me. That is Emma Stone's career performance. Oh yeah, that's without uh, a doubt. It's just she's going up against some insane women, heavy hitters. <laughs> yeah, like just heavy, heavy hitters. Um, my absolute gut, gut. I was between two. My gut, gut, and it was Sigourney Weaver and Michelle Yeoh. Was my. I can get behind that. If I have to get rid of someone out of these, like, these three, which we kind of narrowed down to between Sigourney, Uma Thurman, and Michelle Yeoh, I think Uma Thurman's the next out, which is insane, but, like, Sigourney Weaver, oh, man, but I don't know, Uma Thurman was, like, a literal badass, like, in, like she's, do, like, the cop, the whole fight, like, oh, sh- like, man, they're all cool for their own reasons. Do you want me to... I didn't want. I didn't. It didn't have to be like this. Mm. Uh, but, and I need to emphasize for everyone: recency bias is not at play here when I talk about how much I like everything, everywhere, all at once. It's a movie that I love the direction. I love the writing. I just lauded Stephanie Hsu as potentially one of my favorite performances of all time. Do you ha- know how nuts it is that Stephanie Hsu doesn't dominate the movie? She's not easily the best performance in the movie. I don't even know that she is the best performance in the movie. Michelle Yeoh in Everything Everywhere All at Once is fucking crazy. There's just such a the way we start that movie, it, it, it's, it actually is a little bit, uh, oh, Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor in Terminator, mm. where she starts on this, like, y- you're not a badass. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're, you're not even close. You, you have the potential to become one, but you're not right now. Uh, and the moments everything change, you know, like, and I, that's what's, that's what I like about Michelle Yeoh is we get to see all the facets of this character. That's true. By the end of the movie, she she might as well be Beatrix Kiddo and and Alan Ripley. By the at the beginning though, she is more like Mia. She's more like she's more normal normal lady who is like whenever they're walking around the laundromat, the way she's playing stressed out at the table, the way like but let me ask you, what is Michelle Yeoh's moment? I think it's the hardest one out of all of them to pinpoint a single moment because like the last argument between her and joy like the final or maybe it's like her whole realization like when every like but it's it's kind of unfair because that plays out over the span of like 20 10 20 minutes you know like even 50 minutes maybe if you if you go back like God, we just see her in so many different ways. You know, we see her be clueless and kind of like annoyed and naive, and we also see her be certain and fucking pissed and sad. And like, she just has to reach different depths that I don't think other actresses, the other actresses we had to had here, had to. Maybe that's why she just wins. It is her performance is at the same level as all of these people. But there is no one moment that is like, 
better than the rest because it is just throughout the whole movie that she's that good. Like, she had to play so many different characters. And she killed all of them. Like, yeah, man. I don't. I think it's got like this is. This was the thing I was wor- like I was worried about falling into with Star Wars. I didn't realize everything everywhere all at once might dominate it that way. You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, Michelle Yeoh is best actress. I think that's what I gotta go with. I think, I think that's is. what I gotta go with. Who's uh, who's second place for you? I mean. For me personally, Carrie Fisher. I mm. uh, I think the iconicism of that performance and the way it just changed everything is is can't can't be understated. I don't like she specifically is one that the iconicism carries her to this point. She did not she didn't have to reach the depths Michelle Yeoh has to and everything everywhere all at once. Uh, I'd say her closest comparison in, in terms of actual performance is Ellen is Sigourney Weaver Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley, who because they both kind of play a similar role. There's not a lot of downtime. They don't get a lot of chances on screen to not be panicked, worried, in a hurry, fighting for their life. Mm. You know, like that's that's kind of what they do the whole movie, and they're they're both fantastic at it, but we don't get to see a ton of vulnerability in Leia. We don't get to like, because she doesn't have the opportunity to show it. I think that's, I think it's just that simple. Um, what's crazy is that the, the other four are the ones that are more like, or the other three, Lorraine Bracco, Uma Thurman and Emma Stone provide us with a little more range than those two had to Mm. like Lorraine Bracco. We see her like, I don't think anyone sobs, quite as well as Lorraine Bracco on screen. Uh, like when they're squatted in the corner mm. like, and he's like, what did you do? And he's like, I didn't know. Like, like that, that moment in that movie is fucking incredible. The way she plays pissed when she's on top of him with the fucking gun. Dude. Like, ooh, ooh. The way she plays absolutely horny whenever he goes across the street and beats that dude with the butt of his gun. Like, uh, I put, I put Lorraine Bracco Hello. I put her out way too quick. Like, uh, whenever I was reading through, I put her out like, nah, I shouldn't have. I should not no, have just yeah, like, been, like, she, dismissed I'd say fast. she has far and away the most underrated performance of our mm. nominees here. Um, because she is... That's the thing about her, is that we talked about how she's not the focal point of the story. But in a movie with Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, none of them are nominated. Mm-mm. Not for that movie. Dang, what decade was that one? Nineties. Nineties. They didn't even. They didn't win. Let's see. Do they? I, they got nominated. Joe Pesci and De Niro oh, okay. did, but Ray Liotta didn't. Um. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's. Dang. A smaller part of the movie, but more impactful. Well, because like for me, she is the she like. Again, the pivot point for everything that I'm actually interested in that movie uh, with Hank Hill. Like, man, it's always the mob wife, you know? Like, that's it's such an interesting dynamic that a mob wife has to to deal with. Like, mm. someone who is probably not loyal to them and them only who's going off and, you know, doing what they – like, with other women. And, then, like, I, I'm thinking of – I don't know, but um, – 
oh, what's her name? In The Sopranos, God. Carmella? Yeah, but they're real, uh, the actress, I don't know. Oh, Edie Falco. Um, like, her too, like, I don't know. They're, that's, it's a very interesting character to have to play. Um, hmm. But, man, I, I, I don't think anyone can beat out Michelle Yeoh here, though. Like, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. I think she, she just has to reach to the biggest, broadest extremes across the board, all in a matter of two hours and twenty minutes. And she's pretty much on screen all the time. You know, like she has very little time where she's not, she's not on screen. But uh, yeah, Michelle Yeoh. I, I think that is the best actress of our fifty-two year journey through film. I think it is Michelle Yeoh. Uh, Damn! But fuck yeah, I lo- I love that, love that for her. Um, another win for the twenties with them getting best actress and best supporting actress. With that, on to best actor, where we have a hell of a slate. We got for the seventies Marlon Brando as Don Vito Corleone. Goat. In the 80s, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. Oh. In the 90s, we have Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. In the aughts, we have Denzel Washington as Frank Lucas, an American gangster. Even more goat. Two decades. In the t- yeah, two decades. Damn, man, that's going to be. In the 10s, we got David Diggs as Colin in Blind Spotting. And in the 20s, we have Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson in Tick, Tick, Boom. This is some big, big name. Like, you have The Godfather, Indiana Jones. You know, like, okay, maybe Indy is like, did he really have to reach as much? You know, he, I mean. He plays an epic action hero. yeah. Um, but that, that's what's crazy about this is Harrison Ford is one of the is one of the goats. Uh, but for me, he is first out here. Yeah. Uh, I think he does fantastic as Indy. It's one of the most iconic characters of all time. But he's in kind of the same boat with Leia Organa in the last category, where iconicism can only carry you so far. You did have to reach different different levels in your performance, you know, and. Uh, you know, I think that uh, we have we have a few banger performances uh, that do reach just very very broad spectrum of emotion. Uh, I think Denzel Washington as Malcolm X is what's what's really cool is we've got two no- three nominees here based off real people. Mm. Ooh, Denzel playing yeah. two of them. Wow, Andrew uh, Garfield. Yeah, okay. I didn't think about that. Nor I, but like looking at it like that, it's like wow. So like, I can only carry that argument so far. Is like, because uh, half the nominees are based off of like, well, they had to bring a real person to life, you know? Like, uh, well, I can I can compare three people in that regard. Uh, Here's the thing, though, is that when you've got a category with Denzel Washington and Marlon Brando, how is the winner not Denzel Washington or Marlon Brando? 
I think if we, if you have to pick one Denzel out of here, either Frank Lucas or, or Malcolm X, like what character are you going with? Is it just Malcolm X? Or like it might be. It might be. Th- that's the thing. Is that like I'm thinking? It's kind of nuts because I'm thinking back to all my favorite Denzel moments. Frank Lucas is like the Frank character. Lucas is cold. I think the movie of Malcolm X is like better, and Denzel makes that movie. But the character and the performance of Frank Lucas in American Gangster, like I don't think we rated it too high. Well, yeah, actually, no, we did. Uh, four eight five critically, so wasn't anything to scoff at. Um, no, no, definitely for not. For some like, reason, I thought it was that... much lower than that. I don't know why. Um, I think it came. It came like right after The Departed, which was a surprise, surprisingly low. I think compared to what we thought it would be. Um, but for me, it's interesting because I think he brought Malcolm X to life in a way that's just impeccable. You know, I think I think he did incredible. But when I think about American Gangster, I do think he had to reach a broader spectrum of emotion. Mm. You know, I think he did have to bring the performance to life in a different way. Like uh, the way that that movie took advantage of Denzel being scary as fuck without ever raising his voice, mm. without ever showing any bit of emotion with that. Like, like whenever he. he I mean, obviously, the scene that comes to mind is him sitting in the diner with his family and then being like, uh, just being like casually talking to them about the business and be like, hold on, I got to go see something real quick. And he's like, run that money, uh, Mr. Idris Elba. And he's like, what are you going to do? Shoot me in front of all these people? And he's like, yes, that is exactly what I'll do. He shoots him in the head. He goes ahead and collects the money he was owed and makes his way back into that diner where he sits down and uh, continues to uh, just spit game. Uh, and then later on in that movie, when uh, the wine spilt on the on the carpet, and he's like, "Blot uh, that shit! <laughs> <laughs> Don't rub that shit! You gotta blot that. That's that's alpaca. That's ten thousand dollar alpaca. Or was it ten or like twelve thousand? I can't um, remember how much money yeah. it was. It might have been fifteen 50. or fifty. That's, oh yeah, thousand dollar alpaca. You blot that shit. No, like that's that's one of the that's one of my favorite line deliveries in the history of of hmm. uh, movies. You know, and I want to." Before we dig deeper into Denzel versus Marlon Brando, I do want to put some respect on David Diggs and Andrew Garfield mm. because uh, I think these two are going to have a couple wins in the later section of the award show as far as uh, maybe another monologue one with David Diggs, song performance, maybe either of them. Uh, it's it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But both of them have just nuts – ability to reach a depth of emotion you don't expect like these two are up here with Denzel Harrison Ford and Marlon Brando I think Andrew Garfield more obviously kind of fits into that but the fact that David Diggs is here is fucking awesome you know like uh he was in a decade with Matthew McConaughey and Leonardo, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio Jamie Foxx Steve Carell like Daniel Kaluuya like he, he was he was in a category with some legendary actors and he came out on top you know so now he's getting compared to Denzel Harrison Ford Marlon Brando and Andrew Garfield here um and what's crazy is like he finished uh, for me above Harrison Ford Mm. oh yeah I'd say so 
I'd say so as well. And I, I, I think Denzel Washington brings Malcolm X to life in a way that's really, really impeccable. But I don't know that he has to reach the depth of emotion that Colin has to in blind spotting. I think that uh, David Diggs does provide one of the more nuanced performances of this entire project. Mm. Uh, and I think it's really well matched by Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson. I think that uh, there's a lot of great moments by Andrew Garfield in that movie, dude. Ooh, I'm trying to pick one, and then I'm like, well, damn, whenever he was kind like, of I don't have my ocean. time, do I go see my friend who's in the hospital, or do I write my, do I go to my girlfriend, do I, you know, that moment you have the, the, I don't know, just the grin, the happy birthday, like at the end, <sighs> it's not like anything special or act, it's just the moment, I don't know, like, it was just. Why? Whenever he sits down in the rain and performs that song, and he's got the tears flowing down his face, man, like. He kills that shit. Like, and what's what another like little moment that just he played the character so well is whenever he shows up to his workshop and nobody's there, and Vanessa Hudgens walks in and he's like, uh, "Nobody's here. What am I gonna do? What, nobody's here." She's like, "It's not even nine a.m. yet. It doesn't start till 10. And the way he just <sighs> yeah, just the relief. That's good. <laughs> like, I like he just. The way that Denzel Washington kind of became Malcolm X, Andrew Garfield kind of became Jonathan Larson, you know? Like, it was like, that's what makes Frank Lucas, Denzel Washington as Frank Lucas kind of stand out because that's a real person that he went ahead and dramatized the fuck out of. You know, like, Mm. I don't know that Frank Lucas was exactly like Denzel Washington in this role. The other two felt like they were very honorably representing the person that they were playing. I feel like Denzel made Frank Lucas an absolute pimp for no reason. I didn't even uh, think about it, but like we have the Godfather going against the guy who stood up to all the other Godfathers and and mm. just out out mobbed them. It's something about the it's something about the organized crime leaders, man. They have an opportunity to. What was going to start this pro- or what started the project in the first place? Was organized. It was the mob movies. Like th- those were oh, weren't those the, the first idea. movies that, that you put in place? Idea. Yeah, like it's. There's something special about that story, you know. It's it's so mm. wrong that you don't want to root for him, but while you're watching, it's like I know it's in the mob, but I, I have this this un unquestionable loyalty to, even though I know you're wrong. Like I, it's it's very strange, but it just works. But man, I mean, to this is one of like Marlon Brando as like as the Godfather is one of just the greatest acting performances of all, like of all time across yeah. all movies. I mean, just but like I, that opening scene, man, mm. just getting us so quickly acquainted of what, with what the tone of the movie is and what the lifestyle we're digging into is mm. going to be like, like this mythic idea of the mob and like this grandiose respectability that he's portraying is just like it's incredible you know uh another one of my favorite scenes um, look how they massacred my boy oh oh like that's a meme now but it, like in the movie in the context of the movie it's a very moving scene you know like uh at, later on in the movie whenever he's sitting down with michael and he's talking about what's to come like whoever whoever agrees to sit down he's the one who's doing the thing mm. 
You gotta be on the lookout. Uh, he's like, I already know how this shit goes. Uh, what a what a voice to have to put on too, you know, like the the, the way he yeah held his face, you know, like. To know that he was in Apocalypse Now, I did not know that that was Marlon Brando. Because I've only known Marlon Brando as the Godfather. And then when I saw him as just kind of a normal-looking person, like, I guess, Semi. yeah, uh, maybe not really normal-looking. Yeah, person. he was still, like, he was um, still, he looked like a cult leader but a little like, bit. But, I had no idea that it was him. Like, I had zero until, like, the pod where you're, I think you mentioned his name, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? Marlon, like, that was Marlon Brando? Um... But send Pataglia. Give him an offer he can't refuse. Like Denzel is my favorite actor of all time, so it's hard for me to be like, it's hard for me to say that he doesn't win. So I don't know. Like, I feel like Marlon Brando wins, but that's only because I feel like I am biased towards Denzel so much. Um, no, I. Uh, here's my thing: is that I think if we were to base it off the logic of Actually, no matter what way I spin it in my head, Marlon Brando wins. Okay. Um, Denzel, legend, he's going against Don Vito Corleone, the Godfather. That's that is one of the most classic movie characters and performances of all time. That this is the one that combines the iconicism of Harrison Ford with the performance of a of a crime boss like Frank Lucas. You know, like a. It's. Mm. <laughs> it's impeccable just how classic this shit is. Um, yeah, I'd say I'd say mm. you look up a list of the greatest acting performances of all time. On most of them, if not all, you're going to find Marlon Brando as the Godfather. Um, I yeah, I think yeah, he just wins here. I think he just wins. I think drugs are going to kill this business. Dude was smart. Knew what he was talking about been in the business for a Took while. Frank Lucas down. Damn. Yeah. Ooh-wee. Ooh-wee. Right even all the way back then. Hmm. But well, yeah. another another dub for the seventies there with Marlon Brando. So now we've got we've got a we got one, two, three winners for the seventies. Mm-hmm. I believe. Two for the twenty two or like the twenties. Um, two for the 20s. Both in the same movie, which is nuts. One for the aughts, one for the 90s. Two for the 90s, yeah. right? Uh, Morgan Freeman and Glad Is Gladiator in the 90s? Gladiator's aughts. Oh, never mind. Oh, it's the first so of the got... aughts. That's right. It is 2000. Yeah, it's right? 2000. Okay, so there you go. Uh, but yeah, so only era... What's crazy is the we got the 70s, we got the 90s, we got the aughts, we got the 20s. So we've left out so far the 10s and the 80s. And what's nuts is that the 80s is usually the one where people go, we got to go watch an 80s movie. Uh, hmm. I mean, like, there was a whole song by uh, John Bellion. Remember that song, 80s films? Just like the 80s films will hook up in the backseat and let my best friend drive. Hmm. I have not heard that. Strongly recommend. It is our lowest rated decade, though. Uh, It did did have Spaceballs and Scarface and Blade Runner. Yeah, we had some. 
We had some ones that we just didn't take a liking to in the 80s. Um, yeah, I'd say if you take those out, it actually is pretty high rated amongst. Because but even with like the latter half of the 10s. Like like down in the down in the tens, the fact that they don't have any dubs yet, and we got the sixteen and Ooh, on. Yeah, that was a strong. the The latter half of the tens was strong. And twenty fourteen Interstellar, like there's like six movies above a four point eight in that decade. Damn. Well, sometimes it's just how it works. I mean, this is this is comparing everything. At, like every performance, every movie. Yeah. So I mean, these things happen. I guess like out of the '90s itself, like those nominations, like that was it, it was a difficult. Well, I guess it's actually interesting we say this, say all this because uh, the next category in best director, I'm split between two off the top of my head, and I think it's the '80s and the '10s. So. We've got in the 70s for Best Director, Francis Ford Coppola on The Godfather. In the 80s, Stanley Kubrick for The Shining. In the 90s, Martin Scorsese for Goodfellas. In the aughts, Quentin Tarantino for Kill Bill Volume 1, I think is what I'd choose there if you're, if you're in agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 10s, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. And in the 20s, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. And you're between the tens and the eighties. Okay. Okay. I think I think this does kind of come between for me, Stanley Kubrick and Bong Joon Ho. Okay, because I was very hesitant to put like like Stanley Kubrick up there. Um, no kidding. Like I no like in a I love that movie, so I was like I'm not gonna throw him out there right away just because mm. like I. I really love that movie. Gotcha. I'm going to take myself out of it, but it's, I'm very happy to hear that. That's the thing it. about The Shining, is that it's not a movie I have a lot of interest in rewatching. Mm. Uh, I think the performances are great. It really is the direction of that movie that makes that movie appealing. Um, Stanley Kubrick went fucking nuts for The, the Shining. Build up it's, of that uh, movie. The, just the... What you don't know what's gonna go wrong, but you know something's about to happen. Like it's mm. it's something's about to snap, and you don't know what. And it's just that that is the part of horror or thriller movies that I I can't get enough of. It's not the jump scares. It's not how scared I was during the movie. It's how it builds on top of itself and just keeps going and going and going. And my favorite horror thriller directors Kubrick and and Jordan Peele. Like Jordan Peele does an excellent job of building over the entire span of the movie and having it all connect mm. in, a, in a way that's, you know, you don't think of it first and it blows your mind at the same time it's it's getting your heart to go a million miles an hour. Hey, um, man, you're describing all that. And it ain't necessarily horror. But the other movie on this list that kind of makes you feel that is Parasite. Like, uh, it's not necessarily horror. There are some scary, there's some, there's a couple of scary moments, but, uh, not like horror moments. It's just kind of like, eee, suspense. standing up on me a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, the, the build of suspense I feel is, you know, it, it, not every movie is supposed to do that. Um, necessarily, you know, it's every movie's different, but I think the, it is interesting that these two are very similar, um, in that way. 
we're between those two. Let's throw mm. some respect on the others while <laughs> we're here. Uh, in fact, I'm going to do kind of the compare and contrast thing the way that we've been doing. I think what's interesting about this is we can actually compare the 70s and the 20s pretty well with Francis Ford Coppola and Chloe Zhao. I think that Francis is capturing capturing a segment of American life that we don't know a lot about. Wow. And you know what Chloe Zhao did? In a very different way, obviously, captured a, a, a sect of American life we do not know a lot about. Um, obviously, The Godfather, we've come to know a little bit more about the organized crime sort of thing because of these movies, but we only know the movie version of it. And the reason we know anything about the movie version of it is The Godfather, you know? Uh, it's it's an incredible movie, and I think it's got this, like, grand... It's got this really grand scope, and it tries to paint a really honest portrayal of this lifestyle, which I think it does a very good job of. Uh, and I think Chloe Zhao does the same thing for Nomadland. Uh, and... I think to a lot of the atmospheric shots, just like uh, just the sunsets, the mm. it like just it's just seeing like people sit there, you know, they're just like there's some scenes where they're just sitting on lawn chairs, just not saying a word, just sitting there and like just capturing that, or mm. her running um, near the ocean, just just arm, you know, just running through and just being happy to be there. Um, fucking brilliant dude and then like that's why i love both those movies you know i think they've they kind of are trying to do the same thing with the uh with the storytelling of it all mm. obviously very different movies but uh i feel like they have a similar goal in mind uh, maybe godfather has a little bit more of a narrative goal than nomadland did but uh a little bit more of a traditional plot i feel like i want to i want to throw out i don't usually uh fuck with quentin tarantino too much um, you know, for, for like Pulp Fiction, we didn't really, uh, I don't know if we just didn't get it. I don't know. It just was not, not really, uh, great there, but, but he was in his bag whenever he made Kill Bill. Um, I, I actually saw a, uh, I was recently re reading Movies and Other Things by Shea Serrano, who I absolutely love. I think he's got some just fantastic takes. He talked about Pulp Fiction very briefly in this book where he was like, uh, I, I might, I'm either going to get, I'm going to get one of two reactions from you. Either, yes, finally someone agrees with me, or B, you're a goddamn idiot, you don't get it. And he says, I'm not a huge fan of Pulp Fiction. Uh, I think there are great moments. I think there are certain scenes that are really fun to watch. He said the way he views that movie is like a series of highlights like a, a highlight montage mm. where you're just watching a bunch of clips segmented right one after the other. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's like, it, it makes for some pretty great entertainment, pretty dull movie. Mm. Meanwhile, Kill Bill volume one fucking kills dude. I, mm. I've been thinking about this movie a lot lately and the time of recording is is important in that our kill bill volume two episode came out last friday um so i have been thinking about it a little bit more lately and like there was a whole chapter in that same book i was talking about that was like who gets it worse who gets it the worst in kill bill uh 
And so like, I've, I've just been reflecting on these movies a lot. And, dude, I fucking love them. They were fun. Like, fun and fun good. Fuck. Like, and that's, that's what's great about Kill Bill and Goodfellas getting compared here. Is they're just dripping with style, mm. you know? Mm. Uh, more so Kill Bill than Goodfellas, I'd say, just because that's how over-the-top Tarantino is the blood, in, vol- in Kill Bill Volume 1. Black yeah. and white for some shots, the... The, can't, like, the dramatic, the dramatic shots that are just like uh, them facing off with each other, and the music swells in a really corny way. The, the anime is that in the first one? Yep. Yeah, like the that, that's insane. You know, like the, I had no idea that was in the movie like at all before. Mm. And then as it comes on, I'm like, what the what what's happening? And then I'm like, I'm actually okay with this right now. Like, uh, it's just that that kind of movie. Like it was just fun, uh, just a fun experience to have. But as compared to The Shining or Parasite, it's like, it is one of those two. Uh, and I, I feel, I mean, my pick is The Shining, um, if I, if I have a pick, but it is just one of my favorite movies of all time. It's definitely my favorite thriller slash horror slash whatever you want to call that. Um, so I mean, that would be my pick, but if... Parasite does edge it out, and you see it edging it out. Then I'm I am okay with that. But now nah, here's the thing: is that uh, I find them I find myself thinking of them on extremely equal footing. Uh, I do find that I this is more of an enjoyment based thing. Mm. I do find myself willing to watch Parasite more than I find myself willing to watch The Shining. Uh, the visual storytelling that Parasite utilizes is nuts. The half and half, the downhill, the uphill. <clears throat> like, I, I kind of forgot about all that, and that is, like, part of the direction. And yes, like, The Shining, they do a great job of building everything, but, like, Parasite is, is it's probably going to... The Shining is not really a movie where you can be like, oh, I didn't notice that the first time, or, like, the second or third. But, like, in Parasite, you'll be like, oh, my God. Like, the imagery, the... And the shots were beautiful, too, in that movie. Like, they were set up for a very specific reason. Um, But I'm thinking back to The Shining, man. And I'm like... There is something to the fact that that is what that movie is for to me. You know, Parasite has a lot else going for it, I think. Uh, Don't get me wrong. The direction is a whole other level. But... uh, the Shining, I think if this has a much dull, much more dull director, we don't, I mean, we definitely don't get the performances we got out of Jack Nicholson and, uh, and uh, oh shit, what was her name? Uh, um, oh my gosh, I can't even think of the character. Shelley Duvall. Shelley there Duvall is go. Wendy. Yeah. Okay, I got it, I got it. Yeah, we definitely wouldn't have got the performances that we got out of them because uh, odds are the director would have treated them a lot better. <laughs> um Sad to say, but... Uh... Yeah, sad to say that the reason the movie's good is because he's such a shit dude. Um, I think I'm I think I'm with your gut. Mm. I think I'm with it. I think it probably is The Shining. Uh, there's just... Uh, there's just an appeal to it that I think it does have a lot of the... Man, he has the visual storytelling stuff that, that that Parasite's got going on. I think I think The Shining does it well, and I kind of disagree with the idea that uh, it's something you can watch and not 
Like, I think on the second watch of The Shining, I'm going a little bit more like, Actually, oh, fair. Shit. It is like you didn't oh, read it after you realize where it's going to go. That's okay. That's actually fair. I guess I was thinking of more of like little small details yeah. that are like the, uh, the imagery more and more stuff like that. But but there are definitely parts in The Shining where you're like, oh, like uh, every single person before him has gone crazy. You know, like it's something you don't pick up at first where it's like every person that had the job before him. Or the guy that before, you know, dude, but. it's so way to, it's so cool to think about the way they kind of utilize the same method in completely different ways to build tension. Like with The Shining, a uh, writing behind little red rum kid on his on his little bike, and we're directly behind him around every corner, just waiting for what the fucks around the corner, man. Every time the the doorway and parasite is just foreboding mm. in the background of the room that's more on second watch that you feel that suspense that you start going like oh fuck there's something ominous going on there but uh you notice it mm. like uh you feel the tension build just from it being there and, and like most of, like most of the bike riding like his little bike riding like nothing happens at all <laughs> you're thinking like is some, like what you're thinking the whole time like okay what's well, something's gonna happen at the end of this but then it's like nope move on move on to the next like, we'll come back to mm-hmm. it <laughs> uh the fucking the meticulousness of rolling the tennis ball perfectly and uh took him how many times to get that right i, I it was some ungodly number amount. yeah for, oh. the blood pouring out of, i think it's got to be the shining man yeah. i think it's got to be the shining uh i think it's, it's a whole other level of nitpicky for a director like Bong Joon Ho was very particular about what he needed to, what he wanted to get done and what he needed to get done, but not on the level Stanley Kubrick was, you know. Um, Fifty takes to get that right <laughs> for whatever I'm just reason. Just rolling the ball. Um, probably just to annoy the fuck out of the actors and the camera, crew. like it, just to just to get under everyone's skin. I think it was to perfect for it to yeah. be perfectly. Centered. And it was, yeah, it was. It was probably more of just let's get it in the middle, um, but <laughs> OCD is fuck of Stanley Kubrick. But uh, yeah, I think I'm with that, and thus we have our first '80s win. There we go. Elliot. And with that, let's hit the best writer category. Uh, in the '70s, we've got George Lucas for Star Wars. Uh, he also wrote American Graffiti in the decade, um, but we're gonna cre- credit him for Star Wars here. Uh, Tom Shulman for Dead Poets Society in the 80s. John Singleton for Boys in the Hood in the 90s. Simon Bofoy for Slumdog Millionaire in the aughts. Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won for Parasite in the 10s. And Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once in the 20s. I, this is hard. It's pretty hard. Um, now, whenever we're talking Star Wars, is it really just a hero story? Or, like, was Star Wars really the thing that, like, solidified a hero story? You know, like, it was it like, the bait? I feel like on when you boil down, like, Star Wars, no, fuck, I'm, I can't. Like, I, I'm trying to just, like trying to like discredit that it's like it's not actually good writing but like a lot of the stuff just kind of fell into his lap you know like 
and it was like oh no um, yeah like i think uh here's the thing is that i don't think star wars is like a it's not gonna win this category not for me um i i think it is masterfully written in that it was it did exactly what it aimed to do you know it aimed to create a summer blockbuster that drew in kids and it did that perfectly you know i think it did exactly what it aimed to do I'm between I'm between <laughs> uh, I'm between a few. Uh, I'm between Tom Shulman for Dead Poet Society, John Singleton for Boys in the Hood, Simon Beaufoy for Slumdog Millionaire, Bong Joon Ho and Han Jun Won for Parasite, and Dan Kwan and Daniel Shiner for Everything Everywhere All the Way. <laughs> I'm between every other option. Uh, and, and if I'm get if I'm getting real, I think I, I think I knock Slumdog Millionaire out. Um, it was a great movie. It was very, but it was, it, it sucks that amidst all of these, it's a pretty forgettable one. Mm. Yeah. Um, it was a, I remember loving it and I remember thinking it was, it, it was had a written. fantastic story. I think that's why it actually won the, the writing for the decade is that like, the end of the movie, it like, was it written. was written. And, like, it was just, like, a beautiful, like, oh, come on. Oh, we didn't even... It, it was, was the also, only nomination. <laughs> yeah, the odds were a terribly written movie decade. Like, uh, it was bad that day. It was that just was our written that it was going point. to be the best written movie. It, it, it's yeah, all written yeah. there. Um, but, no, I agree. It, it, out of these movies, though, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of out. Um after that, though, these last four, I have no goddamn clue. Like, uh, these two are, like, very, for a, a reason, like, to show, like, differences in class and, like, struggles with, like, real-world sort of... Oh, well, I mean, I don't want to say everything all at once Parasite, isn't... Yeah. yeah, oh, true. I forgot people can't see what I'm selecting here. Yeah. But, like, e- everything everywhere all at once is a very real problem between families, but, like... Parasite and Boys in the Hood felt more. It's not a multiversal yeah, conflict. It was in the real a, world, a multiversal yeah. stake. Um, uh, well, and I think Dead Poet Society does too. You know, and in a very different way. Mm. Uh, and not in the not obviously not in the same way Parasite and Boys in the Hood does it, where it's a, it's a, a different community that's a little uh, it is a little bit more under underprivileged as opposed to. These Ultra rich white privileged. boys, boys. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it does it does paint a really awesome struggle within Neil uh, during this time, where it's uh, uh, it's about the expectations of what one might expect of someone with that kind of uh, life, mm. someone who has seemingly had it all and is kind of uh, seems like they're set. You know, uh, I think it I think it painted a really awesome. A really awesome portrait there. I think it is. I was going to say, I think it's the most like inspirational and leaves me the most like, wow, my outlook has changed, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's everything everywhere all at once. If we have, if we're breaking it down to these options, uh, it sucks, but I do think dead poet society is my next out. Yeah. Uh, I was there too. And like, if we're going on, like, what's the better story of, like, the class, you know, like, of the real world, like, between Boys in the Hood and Parasite, like, I think Boys in the Hood is well, more well-written than the, like, I, it's, that is what that movie 
that's what that movie is. Is that story? It, it is that story that happened to those people, and like, it wasn't bit. Was it based off? It was not based no. on so a true story. Yeah, no. like it, it might as well have been. That, might as well have you been. Know, like, like that's yeah. But the thing with that's Parasite important. is like, as as Boys in the Hood is better than Parasite as like portraying the real world thing. I think Parasite is like maybe a more well written movie overall. Like for the the suspense building for the 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 mind fuck sort of things like oh there's been a guy living down here for for however long and then now the dad is doing the same thing and like it's all that's what's that's what's interesting about comparing those two movies mm. boys in the hood is a very plain realistic and not plain in a bad way mm. like straightforward is more what i mean mm-hmm. to say like it is this is what happens mm. you know Parasite, it does take real-world problems, but folds them into a little bit more of an unlikely story. You know? Uh, one of my... Fi- I think one of the most underrated characters in the whole... Uh, the whole project is Lawrence Fishburne as, as Furious Styles. He was one of my, like, oh, one of my favorites just instantly, love too. Lawrence like, Fishburne as Furious Styles, man. Like, I don't, I don't know why, like, but his... I don't know why. I just instantly loved his performance there. Maybe it was like I knew he was Morpheus, so I'm like, oh, sick. Let me see Morpheus in, in some some other movie here, you know. And then, but but then I was like, oh no, this is not Morpheus. This is not like this is a he's a, he's acting his ass off here. Like I like this. I don't know. But uh, yeah, this is hard. Gee, this is hard. It's between these uh, three movies, I feel. Um, yeah, and it was was kind of. Um. Man, but I think uh, everything everywhere all at once is just so different. You know, like it is so far outside the box while still telling you a story that is meaningful. Like that's what's crazy about the movie is that they pulled it off and that it is as good as it is. Each character's story is like perfectly – like every character has an impactful moment or arc that like every single character was written beautifully. All the way down to Deirdre. Yeah, I thought you first watch. I'm like, oh, she's just is like a little cameo. She's like the first, you know, the IRS agent. Like it's Jamie Lee Curtis. Cool. Like, uh, I didn't think she was gonna be any more in the movie, like whatsoever. And then like, it turns out that she was just. I was like, kind of hoping for her to show up again. Like in like such, you know, it's like it's like we read like it's like we take we just work our way up with the fantasticalness of everything here with boys in the hood being very straightforward grim rough look of real life problems parasite elevating it a little bit in that it is a look at real life problems and a little bit more of an unlikely story a little bit more like a oh they infiltrated this rich family's house oh there's someone living in the basement this is not likely you know like a and then we elevate that even more with the un- the a real family problem, not a societal problem, a real family problem. I suppose you could look at it as a, as a more general, grand scope critique of general empathy um, and everything everywhere all at once. But it takes some real world, real shit and applies it to the most fantastical nature you could possibly take it. Uh, and a multiversal story where we've got butt plugs and dildos around every corner. Um, uh, and I say that, and it doesn't de- it doesn't it doesn't make it any less legitimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, like it is just still because a fair. 
fair choice. Yeah, just because everything everywhere all at once was so fantastical and written well doesn't mean it was written better than Boys in the Hood. Like just because it's more mm-hmm. fantastic doesn't necessarily make it better. It's just it's it, but it's almost near impossible that they pulled off that movie in the first place the way they did. Like I'm that's I'm the trying. thing that's nuts like, I'm, is that the stakes are so high and so outrageous. There's so much comedy weaved in and out, and it still remains one of the most heartfelt experiences I've had watching a movie. I think Boys in the Hood and Parasite are just very, very close seconds to everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. I like I, I, I have been trying to convince myself of how Parasite or Boys in the Hood could beat out everything, everywhere, all at once, but I, I haven't been able to yet. Yeah, it's, it, it, it really just, just, it just, it just comes down to the fact that I can't fathom how they pulled it off. It could have been so easy to lose the emotional thread with all the outrageous jokes and multiversal stakes and confusing physics and of everything of the world. They just went ahead and told the story they wanted to tell and used the multiverse as a device to do that. It wasn't like the basis of the story, which is... Mm -hmm. That's perfect, you know, like a... I struggle though because I don't like I don't like Boys in the Hood and Parasite are two of the greatest movies of all time, you know? Uh They're written very well. Very well. So that's the that's the we are comparing the best of the best of the decades. So like yeah. it's <sighs> shit. Shit, 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 shit. It's insane that like Star Wars is just like No. Sorry, you're not in this conversation here. Um, yeah. Like Dead Poets, like was a, a movie because of the writing and the emotional aspect that we changed our rating system for, and it's still like, still probably not, you know, like it's great, but not in the conversation of that we're having here. Um, if it's not everything, everywhere, all at once, I think it's even harder. If if you remove everything, everywhere, all at once, and you had to pick between Parasite and Boys in the Hood, that's even harder. That's my thing, is that, like, I can't decide between those two, and I also can't decide if they are better written than everything, everywhere, all at once. Like, that's my that's my thing right now, is I'm like... <sighs> There's too many connections in everything, everywhere, all at once. The circles, the, like, it, the... just there's... That's more like visual storytelling. It's not necessarily writing, you know? Like, okay. Like, I think... I think the shit that's well written in everything, everywhere, all at once truly is the fam- the family drama. You know, like that is the stuff that it- – and the weaving the outrageous comedy within it. Uh, I guess, yeah, that would be for, more direction, I guess, the like all those little visual cues and stuff. But, but the characters and the family story – it's not written bad. It's not poor. Like, it's... Okay. Maybe if I take myself out, take all the multiverse stuff out, take all the action out, take all... So just the emote... But, like, I cry so much more. I cry so hard. So much more in that movie. So I, I cry 
more than Boys in the Hood and, and Parasite combined. That and that's what that's kind of what we've been saying though is that like in spite of all that, it's still one of the most emotionally heartfelt things we've watched ever. And that's not just because of visual cues, you know. It's not just because of score. It's because they wrote the movie so goddamn well. Um, they focused on what needed to be focused on. It's true. And and I mean, but you can't you can't say that's not the case for Parasite. You can't say that's not the case for Boys in the Hood. That that's what's so fucking difficult about this. And what what really really hurts my soul is that I think my first out here of these three is Boys in the Hood. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely love that movie, but I think what it does. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know that I I don't even know that I believe that as I'm saying it. I guess there are some care like that's the thing is that like it's it's hard to compare because every character is so well written and everything everywhere all at once but like they could they completely made up that character when like in Boys in the Hood it was like it's made up. Yes, and sure Ice Cube's here but like it's still a very real portrayal of real people. And it's not like you can... It's it's completely different styles of writing. Um, yeah. And, I mean... Yeah, I might... I think I might go back on everything we've been saying completely and say it's between Parasite and Boys in the Hood. Okay. Don't Don't, like... That's the thing. I can't decide. I'm kind of just talking here. How do you feel about that? Like, when I said that, did your gut go, I agree? Some. I feel like it's... The writing isn't the biggest part of Everything Everywhere All at Once. It is the biggest part of Boys in the Hood. And Parasite. Honestly, too, like it, it may be the direction is big, like, uh, like, I don't know, is a little bit more substantial in Parasite, but like, mm. writing, I just can't. the story, just right, just the story, the story that was told over the span of the movie. If I'm, t- if, 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 if it's that. I need you to remember the first time you watched Parasite. That shit's nuts. Like, I I love Boys in the Hood for how real it gets. Parasite blew my fucking mind the first time I watched it. Parasite is kind of the realness of Boys in the Hood plus the mindfuck and the crazy ride that you're on for the whole time. I... Now actually talking about Parasite, like, I, I, it's just, it is more well-written than everything everywhere all at once. Like, it is between Boys in the Hood and Parasite now, writing-wise. Okay, I'm I'm glad we got there, because I've been, like, I've been trying to, the thing that I just couldn't let go of with everything everywhere all at once was the fact that they pulled it off. Mm. It's just kind of like, it's a movie that shouldn't work and absolutely does on every level. The more It's more the performances and the visuals and the, I mean, the story's good. I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's not, but like, you are distracted by a lot of other things in that movie. Um, 
in which Parasite, it is simply the story. In Boys in the Hood, it is that's that's all you're getting. Like in Boys in the Hood, there's no crazy VFX. Parasite there is, but like it's not to be known that it is VFX. Yeah, it's not it's not to like be like, oh, we're in a different fucking universe. You know what I'm saying? It's like just how uh, modern movies are just kind of made now. Made. Um but if I if I have to pick between Boys in the Hood and Parasite, I think I'm picking Parasite. Okay, I think so too. I think so too. I'm glad we I'm glad we reached a conclusion wow. here. And I'm thinking I'm thinking there. Let's go back through these. We had uh, in set design. We got Star Wars winning. That's a '70s win. Costume design. We got Gladiator. That's an Ots win. And best soundtrack. We got Star Wars again. A '70s win. Best supporting actress. Stephanie Hsu for Joy and Everything Every Wall at Once. Another a '20s win. And best supporting actor. We got Morgan Freeman in The Shawshank Redemption. A '90s win. Best actress. We got Michelle Yeoh as Evelyn. And everything, everywhere, all at once. That's another 20s win. Best actor, Marlon Brando, a 70s win. Best director, Stanley Kubrick, an 80s win. And best writer, Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won for Parasite. And that's our first 10s win. And they're in every single, every single decade got a dub, mm. which is uh, which is impeccable. And I will say the most winning decade, I believe, was the 70s. It's the because. The twenty twos got just two, right? It was just the two actor, actor and actresses. Yeah. The seventies got Star Wars, Star Wars, and Marlon Brando, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Nineties almost got a second one with uh, Boys in the Hood there at the end, but I'm thinking we save movie of the decade for after the after the fun stuff here in a little bit. That's fair. So uh, yeah, not critically movie that not just critically the movie of the decade. It's also like, it's also favorites. Yeah, it's yeah. also favorites. It's all very it's all to be considered. So like let's that. get into that shit. What do you say? Oh, oh, I'm ready. Yeah. So this thing this shit's gonna be way too big. Uh, we're gonna have to cut this up into two parts. So this is gonna be part one, the official part of the ultimate Penny Bloom Film Awards, and you'll just have to catch part two. Head over there right now. Do that shit. Not even really going to do a sign-off. Fucking love you, dog. Go ahead and hit the more fun side of things now. Right now.